Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. In 2015, governments around the world embraced the Sustainable Development Goals. SDG 3 aims to ensure healthy lives and well-being for all people by all ages by 2030. And of course, the global pandemic has disrupted this and other goals adopted six years ago. But might this be a possible moment in time to reset our pathways to make the achievement of health for all by 2030 a real possibility? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine. And I'm so pleased to have Sharon Bessel back with me today. Hi, Anna Greta. Um, hi, listeners. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. And I missed last week's excellent podcast on climate change, but it's great to be back this week. Oh, we missed you, Sharon. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net. We're part of the Crawford School here at ANU, and the Crawford School of Public Policy is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. I'd like to remind our listeners to check out degree programs and short courses at Crawford, uh, and you can find that inf- further information on that at our website, crawford.anu.edu.au. study So, Sharon, what have we got on for today's episode? We have a very exciting and a very special episode this week. So, this week, there has been um, released a special supplement of the Medical Journal of Australia, and that has some of Australia's leading thinkers looking at a whole range of issues around health equity and inequality and imagining that we are in 2030 and then working through how we have, in 2030, achieved what today seems to be very elusive, and that is the goal of health and well-being for all. And in that supplement, they imagine what happened to make the goal real. So today we have two of the contributors to that volume to talk with us through some of the challenges that we're facing from things like housing insecurity and precarious work through to poor nutrition and exploring the solutions that can take us towards equity and justice. And ideally in that imagined 2030 where we actually do have health equity for all. So we are delighted to welcome two special guests to the pod today, two incredible advocates for health equity, Professor Sharon Friel and Dr. Sandro DeMaio. 
Sharon, as some of our listeners will know, because Sharon's been on the pod regularly, um, is the Professor of Health Equity and the Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance at the Australian National University's School of Regulation and Global Governance. Sharon was Director of Regnet from 2014 to 2019. She's also a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia and Co-Director of the NHMRNC Centre for Excellence in the Social Determinants of Health Equity. And Sharon has, has published widely on these issues and is also a real driver for policy change. Sharon, great to have you with us today. Lovely to be back. Thanks. Sandro is a medical doctor and a globally renowned public health expert and advocate. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Vic Health, um, and it is Vic Health that has been the driver for this special supplement of the current um, edition of the Medical Journal of Australia. Uh, Vic Health is Victoria's peak prevention and health promotion agency. Sandro was previously a medical officer for non-communicable conditions and nutrition with the Department of Nutrition for Health and Development at the World Health Organization and a former CEO of EAT Foundation, a science-based global platform for food systems and transformation. And again, Sandro, like Sharon, is one of the leading thinkers in um, issues around health equity and the social determinants of health. Sandro, great to have you with us today. Great to be here. So we want to work through today some of the challenges that you identify in this um, supplement but we also want to move on to look at some of the solutions and how we move move forward. But let's begin with some key definitions. Sharon, can I ask you a fairly fundamental question, but one that I think is really important to frame this conversation? What do we mean when we're talking about the social determinants of health? Wow, great question, Sharon. Well, so the social determinants frame came, oh, what, back in the 90s, I think, wasn't it? When really there was a a move to understand that there was something at the societal level that was contributing to people's health, not just at the individual level. And so really demonstrating and pushing for action beyond the individual level of responsibility. So the conditions of everyday life, the conditions in which we are born, grow, live, work and age. So whether that's where we work or our education or the quality of our housing, these are our daily living conditions. Uh, That's part of the social determinants. But the other part, which is often left off because it's much more politically difficult, uh, are the issues to do with power, money and resources, those big structural drivers that shape society uh, and that shape our daily living conditions. That's I, I, I hope the listeners are not thinking, oh, for goodness sake, that was a terrible definition of the social determinants of health. <laughs> no, I think no. that was an excellent definition and the listeners are going to be saying, okay, we want to know more. <laughs> Um, so Sandro, Sharon, I think, has given us a superb framework to start this conversation, as we would expect from her. But how perhaps you can give us the significance of this in the Australian context. How significant are the social determinants of health uh, in terms of the impact on d- burdens of disease and illness in Australia? Well, they're really everything. Uh, you know, I, I can kind of stop there because that's how important they are. But um, they they really, you know, shape every aspect of everyone's lives, um, they're the 
structural, commercial, cultural um, determinants that really, you know, influence whether an, an individual is able to enjoy and achieve good health. Uh, it's everything from the environment and opportunities, in, you know, even before you're born, uh, as you're developing uh, in, in, you know, in utero, all the way through to influencing the way that you age, where you die, how you die, and whether you live for, you know, for 30 years with chronic disease or um, enjoy a good quality of life right till the end. So the social determinants influence every aspect of health across our life course. And I think um, you can often listen to the social determinants and, a, and an expert like Sharon um, who is world-renowned, she's very modest, but, um, you know, we, we're very lucky to have Sharon's leadership in Australia and to have brought the, the kind of global thinking of the Commission from, you know, its epicentre in Europe to Australia so early and to foster a strong research and policy focus here in Australia. Um, it's very easy to listen to that definition and think, oh, it sounds abstract, it sounds, you know, um, sort of out there somewhere or or it sounds sort of something that doesn't relate to to me um, and until the pandemic uh, I think in many ways social determinants were kind of politically largely just politically inconvenient uh, things like quality of housing uh, whether you got you know whether you could afford childcare things like even uh, how you're treated as a minority or as a woman in this country whether you have access to um, you know high quality nutritious food whether you can put put good food on the table or even simple things like you know whether your welfare check if you have fallen on hard times covers your bills and allows you to live in dignity whether even things like being on welfare comes with inherent shame as opposed to dignity and whether if you're on tenuous work or short-term casual work, whether you're allowed to take a sick day and, and have that paid and covered like everyone else. These sorts of things were politically inconvenient conversations. They were things that we largely shuff, shuffled under the carpet pre-pandemic uh, as, a, as a society. And I think the really big thing that has changed is the realisation that we can no longer do that. They have become politically unavoidable because it was it was insecure housing. It was poor quality housing, it was insecure work, it was not being able to take a sick day, it was not being able to put your child in childcare that was affordable. It was suddenly these things that became major drivers and determinants of outbreaks and COVID transmission in the community because you, you realise, A, that no one is safe until everyone's safe. That is the fundamentals of the social determinants and the wider framework of the Agenda 2030, the SDGs, which you talked about at the start, but also that uh, if you don't afford these basic uh, rights, um, and that's what they are, to all people, then you leave everyone more vulnerable, but you also leave certain individuals in society far more vulnerable um, to poorer health outcomes. And COVID suddenly became, made that very real for everyone. Now, previously, it was heart disease, it was diabetes, it was cancer, it was mental illness. All of these things are overwhelmingly burdening uh, individuals who already face greater barriers, lower-income families, single-parent households, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, individuals who face significant barriers to achieving and maintaining good health because of the social determinants. But COVID has made that so real 
and so politically unavoidable that, you know, I think now for the first time in my career, which is relatively short compared to many others, the social determinants have become politically unavoidable rather than simply a political inconvenience. Sandro, that's a a great mapping, I think, for some of the issues that we want to dig into a little deeper over this episode, both the problems, but then, as I said, also um, turning to to some of the solutions. Before we start to dig into those issues um, that you've raised, Anna Greta, I want to pull a little bit of a switch here and ask you a question because you are a medical doctor, you're a specialist cardiologist, and I'm just really curious at this point how you see the social determinants of health playing out in terms of heart disease. I'll start by paraphrasing what Sandro said. It's everywhere. It's such an extraordinarily important part of the clinical work that we do in medicine, in hospitals, in general practice, in private practice for specialist doctors. I'll give you a little example because I think it helps to contextualise this work and its importance. When we talk about heart disease, I'm talking particularly about the sorts of diseases that cause heart attacks and strokes, atherosclerosis, the plaque inside arteries. And when we're at medical school, we learn through the biological uh, forms of uh, the drivers of that particular disease. We'll talk about uh, hypertension. We'll talk about cigarette smoking and elevated cholesterol. We talk about diabetes and often look at things like genetics, your family history. There are other factors, of course, that can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease at a younger age. And so this, this biological model is the dominant theme that plays out through our health system. But in fact, when you pull apart information on the social determinants of health, things like precarious housing, uh, where, you, where you live and who you live with, uh, access to things like uh, good quality uh, education and good quality employment will all have a dominant uh, role to play in terms of your uh, outcome. And it's particularly seen in the work that Sharon Sharon, uh, Friel has done previously with Michael Marmot, looking at the gap between what's called the disability-free life expectancy, so how long you'll be really well for and what your life expectancy is. And so what we see in people who live in in precarity, where the access to education, access to socioeconomic support is, is, uh, is compromised, is this significant gap between being well for a long time into to old age and to to ageing well uh, in people who are very well resourced. And so this is where equality comes down as a key issue. It's most definitely apparent in our hospital system. It's apparent throughout our health system. uh, And that's why this report is so important is because it brings that narrative into the clinical context. Thanks, Anna Greta. It's it's really interesting to get that kind of view on the ground as well. I just wanted to um, quote that a a young person, a about a 15-year-old Victorian brought up a few weeks ago and I thought it so perfectly explains the social determinants. So this came from a 15-year-old living in regional Victoria um, and he said, you know, we might all be in the same ocean but we're not all in the same boat. Some of us are cruising through the pandemic in a yacht while others are in a leaking um, dinghy. And I thought that really for me painted the clearest picture from a teenager of what the social determinants are that, you know, yes, we might all live in the same world, but, and even that we can probably debate about, but, you know, we're not all in the same boat. So let's look at some of these issues in a little more detail and step through the kinds of things that need to change um, if we are to address those negative social determinants. Sharon, in your um, article in the supplement of the, the Medical Journal of Australia this week, 
you talk about the importance of two big issues, both income and housing. Can you talk us through the relationship uh, between income and housing and poor health and particularly how power starts to play out within that? You mentioned in the introduction, you know, the fundamental importance of power. So how do those things come together to create a situation within which people simply can't achieve good health? Yeah, so there's three three things that really matter for health. There's material resource, there's a sense of control over our lives, and there's a voice in the decision-making processes that of things that affect our life. Uh, Amartya Sen, a Nobel Prize economist, uh, speaks about this sense of freedom to lead a life that we have reason to value and these three elements being vitally important capabilities and they're all shaped by the social determinants that we've been speaking about. So how does how uh, how does income and housing uh, contribute to that? And I suppose the first thing I, I want to say is, so money matters for health but the unequal distribution of money matters for health inequities. It's not always the same thing, and that's the same with housing. So we have to keep a very, very deliberate uh, lens on the inequality if we truly want to address issues of of power, money and resources. So income uh, income gives us material resource, uh, of course, to be able to buy and live in ways that are reasonable for our well-being. It also gives us a sense of control over our lives. If we don't have enough money, if we don't know where money is coming from, if we don't know if we've got income security, that creates a, a, a stressor uh, within us, which has both a physical and a mental health consequence. It increases our risk of cardiovascular disease and it also absolutely increases our risk of, of mental um, poor health. So income sort of affects us at the individual level in multiple ways, but it also, and the inequality in income affects us uh, as a society. So the greater the inequality, the income inequality within society, the lower levels of trust, the lower levels of engagement, the lower levels of social connectedness that we have within society, greater fragmentation. And we know that that really matters from a, yeah, a, a much more sort of population uh, level uh, in terms of uh, you know, a, a sense of, of well-being, a sense of we're all in it together. Yes. Um, and, you know, getting behind uh, initiatives. Housing, of course, is a basic requirement for shelter, um, but it's also, I mean, if you think of uh, what does, a, what does a, an address give us? You know, adre- an address allows us to have a driver's licence, it allows us to register for a GP, it allows us to engage in health and community services, uh, to access services that are really important to, for example, find a job, blah, blah, blah. So housing is a basic, um, as Sandro mentioned, a basic human right in in terms of addressing those um, basic rights, but it gives us so much more. Uh, And so some of the interventions that we saw around housing uh, through, well, particularly through the states and and territory uh, governments went a long way to think about shelter and 
indirectly went some way to help address these kind of intangibles of housing. And wouldn't it be fantastic if we had, like you've got down in in Victoria, Sandro, where the the Premier introduced a, a significant spend on social housing. Imagine if we had that really rolled out uh, through the budget that's coming up very soon. Sharon, I just wanted to follow up on that. And I think that example of social housing goes back to the issue of power and who holds power and who is able to influence the agenda. But you talked about the work of Amartya Sen. And one of the the really powerful things that has come from his work that has been picked up from others is the way in which shame shapes people's lives. And so when we start to blame the individual for their lack of income or their poor housing, then we're transferring to that person a a sense of shame that they will often carry with them in everything they do, particularly in this area of of social housing, but also in relation to income and when people are receiving benefits. How do we start to seriously address the shame that often comes with those things that, as both you and Sandro have said, are actually human rights, not, not, not charity? I think some of the framing work that Vic Health have been doing would be very relevant here. So I, I might just kick off and then I'll, I'll perhaps pass it to Sandra if that's okay. But to me, there's two ways that we often come at the social determinants of health. We put a sticking plaster on population groups. And I'm, I'm doing inverted commas to, I forgot we're on radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, we put a sticking plaster uh, to help populations who are absolutely in need. But what that does is it keeps the conversation about those individuals, those population groups, which goes to your point, I think, uh, Sharon, around. Then we're talking about the people and it's very easy then to have a headline in the newspaper that's about... They, and I'm, I'm quoting something from work that that when we were I was working in Ireland and there was this thing of the feckless poor uh, was a headline in the newspaper, which is just just shocking. It's, I think it's just immoral uh, that we would get that sort of reporting. But when we continue to have both a, a policy response and an action that addresses and we talk about people as vulnerable populations, then we're constantly putting it on the individual, which then means it keeps a discussion about, or not a discussion, it keeps a stigma, a shame. I'd love us to flip the conversation uh, so that we're not talking, we're never, ever, ever speak about vulnerable groups, but that we speak about the conditions that create this terrible circumstance for people. And that means we start to talk about the systemic factors that really are the social determinants. And so we really start to talk about why do we have this incredible uh, wealth distribution in Australia? Why do we have this incredible uh, control of the housing market by the private property developers? Why do we have this um, tiny, tiny percentage of the political uh, elite uh, and the, the corporate elite who make the decisions about the structure of our economy? Let's have a conversation about that. Let's stop talking about vulnerable populations or else we will never get away from stigma and shame. 
Sandra, maybe I could bring you in here to talk about the work you've done on food because I think it follows on beautifully from the the discussion that ha- that we've just gone through on housing. Um, you've made the point that the problem with at the diets that we see often in our community is not ever about laziness or, or about poor choice, but it's really about other factors, particularly access and money, power perhaps. Maybe you'd like to follow on from Sharon's comments uh, focusing on the food questions that are raised uh, in this supplement. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The the common misconception, uh, and I think it's also something that we as doctors are not often adequately trained in, in and understand uh, because of the inherent sort of privilege that we have and um, and and the, and the blind spots that we have as a as a as a as a group um, is that it's not individual failure or uh, poor choice that you know sees two-thirds of a population uh, facing long-term malnutrition and chronic disease being the leading risk, risk of death in Australia. It's it's structural, economic, cultural barriers that result in, in, in those outcomes for particularly the most marginalised individuals. And I do think language is really, really, really important because if I if I take two examples, and I digress for a second, but if I take two examples, if we talk about the options someone is afforded versus the choices someone makes. We might use those words interchangeably, but an option is something that we afford to an individual as a society. A choice is something that that individual makes. If you if you talk about lifestyle choices, inherently it, it will come back to individual blame. It will result in high levels of uh, stigma uh, and shame for for individuals when actually what we know is it's about a lack of affordable, safe, appropriate, meaningful options, and particularly uh, for families and individuals pace, facing greater barriers to achieving good health. The other is 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 as as Sharon said, vulnerability. You know, vulnerability is again inherent in the individual. Marginalisation is something that a society does to an individual. And really, this is an issue of marginalised populations, not an issue of vulnerable populations. These popula- populations, individuals, families across across Victoria who have experienced food insecurity, uh, a doubling of food insecurity over the last 12 months, they're not, they're not vulnerable. They're incredibly strong, resilient, hardworking, proud Australians uh, who have because of structural issues, because of the way we've constructed our food systems, because of the way we uh, have have built our economic systems, have have now been, you know, for all intents and purposes, pushed out of the Australian food system because of the uh, shock that uh, COVID and on the back of uh, uh, bushfires and before that drought has brought to uh, to our you know, to our food system. And we knew those those fragilities were there. We were okay to live with it because uh, it's a food system that serves, most of the time, uh, serves Australians very well. Um, but those individuals are not are not vulnerable. They're, they're, they're marginalised. They're a group of indi- they're, they're individuals who have been effectively shut out of the food system because of structural blind spots that we, that we as, as a society and governments, you know, didn't act on earlier. And I think food for me, you know, I, I was talking about the social determinants last week with some doctors and it's very important that when we talk about the social determinants, we make it relatable, that people can 
touch it, feel it, understand what the social determinants are. And I think for me, food is really the most powerful way of, of making it clear and tangible to uh, an individual what we are talking about. Because at the end of the day, food is the litmus, you know, it is the canary in the, in the mine of poverty and, and uh, marginalisation because it's always, we know that food-related disease, we know that uh, hunger, we know that malnutrition follows so closely, poverty across Australia. Um, we know that our food system is 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 constructed in a way that really has been commodified to the point that it's a more of an economic system than actually a nutrition system. And I think the things that are called for in here, whether it's in in this paper, whether it's the way we think about our cities and the opportunities to design cities to bring food systems and food environments, healthier food environments, into those spaces, whether it's looking at the commercial determinants and the influence that, you know, big food organisations and big soft drink organisations have on our politics, the externalisation of, of the costs of production that leads to market failure and overproduction, and which is then, of course, solved by, by marketing, which leads to overconsumption and things like obesity and, and even drives things like climate change. Um, the interconnectedness of all of these challenges and the connections between all of these major challenges, but in the but but food being such a an interlinking challenge and also opportunity, I think is one of the key takeaways of of this supplement. And if we go back to where we started this conversation, if we think about the sustainable development goals and the breadth and complexity of those goals, seventeen goals, one hundred and sixty nine targets, nine years to achieve health for all and our commitments to, to the sustainable development agenda, which we've signed on to as a country, we're going to need to find sort of, you know, not silver bullets, but we're going to need to find the closest things that we can to bring the baseline health of populations, you know, to lift those, to build back better, fairer, more sustainably and more equitably because it's, be, it's been made so clear what, what vulnerabilities that will provide us, what, what huge challenges that will present us when we start to see the full effects of climate change, let alone, you know, the, the, the taste of that that we've had with COVID. So if we're looking for ways to address the complexity of our commitments to sustainable development, social determinants, things like income, housing, education, but particularly food and, and addressing our food system, the, the, one of the, the major benefits is that it actually has multiple dividends. It will address multiple challenges. It will address multiple indicators and multiple goals. Every goal, I can go through them, but every SDG is inextricably linked to food production, food insecurity, food inequity, and, um, and food systems. And so, I think for me, it's about the, you know, it's about setting the moral compass for 2030. It's about really reflecting on where we are today and what we've learnt from, from the last 12 months. And it's about finding, you know, some, some clear um, opportunities that we need to invest more heavily in, many of which are the social determinants of health, to get us 
uh, to, to a much healthier place by 2030 as a nation. Sandra, that connects so many issues together. And as you were talking about choices, I was thinking of that quote that you gave, um, that very powerful quote from the 15-year-old about us being in the ocean but in different vessels. And of course, if you're in the yacht, you often have the choice to jump into the smaller boat. If you're in the small leaky boat, you very rarely have the option to jump onto the yacht unless you are invited. Sharon, I've given your book to a few politicians and I thought perhaps this is a good opportunity for you to talk about consumptogenic systems and what you mean by that and how it helps us to address the social determinants of health. Yes, well, thank you for the plug of the book, uh, Climate Change and the People's Health by the Oxford University Press. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but seriously, so yeah, I've been using this language of the consumptogenic system, which wraps uh, a lot of the issues that Sandra was just speaking about. But basically, what, what are consumptogenic systems? It's our social institutions, our public policy settings, our business practices and our societal norms, values and behaviours and power relations that are collectively, currently, status quo, driving uh, environmental degradation, inequality and poor health. And so the challenge for us is to transform the consumptogenic systems towards systems of sustainability, health, equity uh, going forward. And uh, as we've been speaking about now, that's about addressing some of these underlying conditions. I think that's the perfect place for us to take a break and to come back and to start to talk about some of the solutions. So listeners, don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing some of the challenges that must be addressed if we're going to achieve health equity over the next decade. It's a pretty depressing picture when we look at some of the challenges, but there, some of the opportunities are also quite inspiring. So let's turn now to what some of the solutions might be. Sharon, you and your co-authors write quite excitingly, I think, about a new deal for health, sustainable and equitable futures. What does the new deal look like and what principles underlie it? Yeah, so the New Deal, based on principles of fairness, sustainability, um, health and well-being, of course, uh, that get embedded into every governance mechanism, every policy mechanism, every societal uh, initiative. So we make decisions based on those principles. We don't make decisions based on activities. We make decisions based on outcomes. 
Um, a new deal for the future would mean we address many of the issues that we've just uh, been speaking about on the, the podcast, issues of income, issues of housing, issues of education, issues of food system, uh, etc. But really fundamental to that, I think, are questions of governance. You know, who's at the table? Who gets to say what? How do they say it? Who's not at the table? Why are they not allowed at the table? Uh, and so therefore, where are all of the policy silences um, are, you know, around that? So a new deal for the future means that we have a governance system that is much more inclusive of diversity. Uh, we have not just men. We don't just have people of particular uh, shapes and sizes. We have a whole diversity. That is Australian culture. And so that diversity of voices means we have the needs of a variety, a real variety of communities in Australia being represented. Um, I didn't mean to be disrespectful to men, of course, there. But, you know, it's, what I mean is we don't have the status quo and our governance systems are anyway I, well, I was going to explicitly ask about how we how we address issues of gender equity in in your new deal and so you've explained that to us quite nicely that diversity of representation is a really important part of making uh, a healthy future yeah, and a range of um, some beautiful work that uh, Sandra and colleagues through Vic Health have, and, and with the supplement actually, has really been privileging the voices of of the youth or, or younger um, voices in society. Um, as I get older, I would like to say, let's make sure we we don't we, we have the spectrum of of age represented. Um, but I think it's really important that we we have uh, youth voice because that, to me, is where we have uh, the voices of hope uh, for the future. So, Sandra, how do we engage? communities in this process? How do we bring people along on the journey? How do we make sure that our governance and our future really brings people into the same boat, perhaps, to, to, to stretch that analogy? Have you got a strategy in place at Vic Health? Well, I think the first step is to listen. And uh, we have two ears and one mouth. And so we should use those in the ratio that we have them. Um, and particularly, I think, as uh, as policymakers and as academics, um, you know, being humble and, and as doctors even more so, um, you know, being humble to the fact that communities are experts in their own uh, lived experience. In, in they, they, they understand the social determinants because they're living the social determinants every day. They see the structural barriers that stand between them and good health um, getting taller and taller, uh, you know, every day. So, I think it's it's about listening and really understanding what what this agenda means to uh, to marginalised and to uh, communities that are, are living the the worst effects of the social determinants. I think it's also um, we, within that. Well, certainly this this is this has been something that Vic Health has been working very hard on over the last um, eighteen months. You know whether it's through actually um, uh, engaging and you know leaving uh, our offices in Victoria, you know Melbourne, but actually spending a lot more time uh, with partners, with communities, engaging as as Sharon said, young people more meaningfully um, in our work, and going beyond just giving young people. We've we've in the last twelve months gone tried to go far beyond just giving young people. 
a voice or a seat at the table, but actually handing over power in some of the decision or many of the decision-making processes that we make. And our grants are one example. We give out about $7 million worth of grants a year. We're a statutory authority. So clearly, you know, we have very rigorous and important um, processes that we need to adhere to and go through. But we've actually, in the two most recent grant rounds, they were about addressing the social and structural uh, barriers to good health for young Victorians. And so rather than giving the money out from someone who is not young to someone who is not young in, in the community to run a program for young people, we actually at our end gave the uh, power over to a group of young people from diverse backgrounds that we sourced through partners, uh, partner organisations across Victoria, including importantly regional Victorians, uh, and and we allowed them to decide where much of that $7 million went, what projects were meaningful for them, what what actually they felt was going to make a difference for young people at this time, informed by the evidence, and we had good quantitative and statewide quantitative evidence that we collected, pulse surveys and population-based surveys. So they had all of that as well. But ultimately, it wasn't just about listening, which was the first step. Uh, it was actually about handing over power, which I think is really, really critical. That's, that's where we need to be. Um, you know, and thinking about how we then engage, whether it's young people or other other marginalised groups, uh, you know, engaging them in in the work of government and governance, um, and and you know, giving them the opportunity to participate and to set. Um, I think you know we're we're looking and thinking now. Well, we've created a um, a supplement with more than 30 of the nation's experts, many of which were early career experts. Um, but what does it mean now to take, you know, this this important piece of science from 30 experts and then work with young people to translate it uh, into something that looks and speaks to and is meaningful for them? Um, and, and that will be, you know, we've, we've got a partnership with the Museum Network here in Victoria that we'll look to to do that through um, and then take that on the road through our partnership with local governments across regional Victoria. Um, so I think it's about, you know, as I said, it's about listening. It's about kind of being humble to your own framings and being open to kind of challenge where you think power and, and um, expert sort of sits, understanding that young people or, or I'm, I'm sort of using young people as an example, but individuals that are facing greater barriers to good health that are living the social determinants that you actually hand over a degree as much as possible of power, engage them in the political process. And, you know, I think that's the first step. And that's certainly the journey that that we'll continue to be on. That idea of listening is something that has come up repeatedly over um, the, the pod Know, for for the last probably twelve months, and I think thinking of listening as the first step, but then shifting power as the next step is so fundamentally important. Sharon, we're we're moving towards the the end of this pod, but a couple more time for a couple more questions, I think. And I did want to come back to you. Um, you raised issues around governance, um, and particularly the role of government, but of course, there's also the role of the private sector in all of this, and across both government and private sector, um, and civil society, we see a range of vested interests. So how do we work with those existing vested interests as we try to shift the landscape and shift power? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's vitally important that we recognise that there are very, very strong vested interests in this arena. I think it would be fair to say that if we're going to do anything about health equity, it's actually a very, uh, it's a political struggle. Uh, And I think the... uh, Yeah, I mean, how do you... So we all have power. Yeah, Uh, everybody has power and the power of the collective is where we've learned uh, from history that the power of the collective uh, using a whole variety of strategies and tactics is where that recalibration of the concentration of power has happened. So talking about gender equity, we see within the the climate movement, I'm not entirely sure that we've shifted power there, but, you know, we're seeing things uh, being, it's now mainstream rather than on the fringes. That's a a very important uh, shift that's happened there. Um, Some of the the work, I think, that colleagues, there's some brilliant work that colleagues here in Australia are doing. And again, another plug for the the great work done in VicHealth, but looking at the... um, the unhealthy uh, industries monitoring hub. So, you know, an important shining a light on the policies and the practices of those vested interests, the demonstration of how those vested interests are shaping the policy and regulatory environment, shaping our everyday environment, whether that's about access to food or alcohol or, you know, whatever uh, those uh, unhealthy commodities might be. So shining a light on them. So that's an accountability, a, a monitoring uh, mechanism. Uh, all of the sorts of advocacy work that I think, Anna Greta, you do that uh, constantly um, You know, in terms of you know, in there with the politicians, cups of teas, sitting saying, have you thought about this? Maybe we should think about this. You know, that's such a, an important mechanism for laying, laying thoughts, sensitizing, incubating ideas of doing things just a bit differently. And also because they're responsible to their voters. Um, but I do just think, uh, the, and it's, I, I don't have an answer to how do we break the stranglehold between some of the corporates and our political elites. And I do think the climate change discussion in Australia is just such an example of that. Here we have a government who is being shamed by the rest of, well, not the rest of the world, but by many other governments around the world who are really starting to suggest that, well, the rhetoric is that they're about to do something on climate change and the Australian government continues to be a laggard. And that is, is, is ideological and it's also because of the power of the industry, the fossil fuel industries in Australia. How do we break that? I, I just actually don't have an answer, but the collective, the pushing up. So this is, you, you said earlier, uh, Sharon, about, you know, a, a charity model. One thing I uh, often worry about and have seen in the past is when we talk about community action, it's about communities having to look after themselves. Mm. Mm. And that is fundamentally unfair, I think. Um, mm. But the power of the community pushing up for the structural action that's required to break some of those vested interests, I think is incredibly powerful. And so the, ca- the galvanising of some of the communities in the way that Sandra was speaking about, imagine that collective voice pushing up saying, this is not acceptable. 
I think this is a conversation that we could continue for much longer, just as we come to the end of this podcast. Sharon, I think you've mapped out a future podcast around how we break that stranglehold. Um, We will need to draw this to a close, but as we do, I just have one final question for each of you. The current pandemic, with all its horrors, does bring a rare and unique opportunity to genuinely rethink how we can do things differently, and I think this conversation has has pointed to those opportunities. Can I ask you in closing, what is your priority recommendation for policy translation of the rich discussion that's in this supplement that's just been released this week and that we've just had to ensure that Australia's best health is achieved? by 2030. Um, and Sandro and Sharon, I'm keen to hear from both of you. Can I give you a moment of thinking time and and throw to my pod buddy, Anna Greta, and ask you that question? Because as Sharon said, you're, you're such an advocate in this area. Um, Anna Greta, what's your priority recommendation before we go to so our excellent guests? One thing, and it's really hard to choose one thing in a landscape that I know everyone in this room is so passionate about seeing change in. Uh, I think the pandemic has shown us the power of the health voice. I think we've seen the power of health intervention. I think we've learned the power of listening to expertise. I think taking all of that on board is a really important part of achieving our best future. I would, and it's my bias as a clinician, as a practising doctor, that I, I would like to see our framework for our health sector really change to to recognise the vital importance not just of the biology of disease, which is absolutely central to the work that we do. We need to understand the mechanisms of disease on a cellular level. We need to understand the pharmacology, the pathophysiology. That's core work for doctors. But when we fail to recognise the broader context or of the social determinants and the environmental context, we don't give the best possible outcomes for the health and wellbeing of our community. So if we flip that paradigm so that we're training our next generation of health leaders, our next generation of health workers toward understanding biology, society and environment sit side by side and all have an equal uh, power and weight into the health and wellbeing of our community. Fabulous. Thanks, Anna Greta. Sandro, it's it's a hard ask, but a priority? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's a priority, but what I would say is it's an opportunity. The, the current framing and discussions around all of us not being safe until, uh, sorry, none of us being safe until all of us are safe. Because I think this is such a profound conversation to be seen and to be heard across the Australian political and so- societal landscape. This is something that we've been talking about with the SDGs, leave no one behind since 2015 and even before that. But the conversation really didn't resonate and reverberate across Australia in the way that I think it, it is now. I think people are people really understand, Australians really understand that when it comes to not just COVID, but health more broadly, our economy, our society, our climate, every, you know, every aspect and, and really all of the social determinants, that none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And I think doctors can be the champions of that. We, we need to be. Um, but I think that is such a profound opportunity to channel that discussion and that energy and that realisation to make sure that it doesn't disappear and dissipate after COVID leaves our shores and that the, uh, the progressive policies that we have been able to put in place and the deep cracks that we had long papered over that have been revealed for what they are because of COVID with regards to inequity, um, that we we don't forget those and that we continue to act on those. So I think if we can keep one thing in the front of people's minds, 
as we come out of COVID or even just continue to navigate COVID and the ocean that it is, it's that no one will ever be safe in Australia until everyone is safe. Thanks, Sandro. There's, there's a, an element of, of optimism that we can do this in that response to that I think is just so important. Sharon. <laughs> uh, let me be hopeful. Mm. Um, so I've got two very specific things. I'd like us to see a Ministry of Equitable Wellbeing. Uh, I want this whole agenda taken out of the Ministry of Health. And the second thing is the implementation of a social vaccine. I'm going to have to ask. <laughs> A social vaccine? So a social vaccine is simply a metaphor for everything that we've just been speaking mm. about uh, and it just to juxtapose against a kind of a biomedical uh, approach. Uh, let's have a, a public, a very public conversation about the implementation of a social vaccine led by the Ministry of Equitable uh, Wellbeing. That is a fabulous visionary and optimistic last word, a social vaccine um, from a Ministry of Equitable Wellbeing. I think that is the perfect place to close this conversation um, as we open other conversations about how we go about achieving that. Um, Sandro DeMeo, Sharon Friel, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation and um, we really appreciate your time and your vision. Lovely. Thanks, both. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was great. So, Sharon, how was that conversation? I love that conversation. I thought that was just so insightful. And raising those issues around inequalities and maldistribution and patterns of power, I think is so important. And it's so critical in this country at this point in time, as in many countries, that we have those honest and frank conversations. And, you know, Anna Greta, my work is around uh, child poverty. And everything that was said goes to the heart of how we begin to address child poverty. It can't be on an individual basis or on a basis of individual blame or charity. It has to be around addressing those structural issues. And we heard so much richness around how we do that. But I feel as though you're the expert in the room on this one. You know, oh, what was your take no, on that? No, I mean, I, I don't have much expertise in it, but I'm, this is obviously one of the things I'm highly passionate about. And, and I, you know, it was such, it's firstly, I have to say to our listeners that it's really worthwhile downloading this MJA supplement. It's free online. Um, readily available and we'll link to it in the podcast. Uh, but it, it's a rich read and it's particularly a rich read because you see the narrative themes emerge, not, not just when you think about uh, physical activity and the way in which we build our cities or when you approach our food system, but you see that the themes really run through each one of these individual problems and these individual policy solutions. So it's this systems thinking, for want of a catchphrase, uh, that really will help us to get the best possible health outcomes for our Australian population. If we we can change our, our way of thinking uh, from, from the individual silo through to a broad systemic response, then we can seriously improve the population health and well-being. We can address problems such as childhood poverty, and we can get to the core of the inequality that impacts on the lives of so many people that we know. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would agree, Anna Greta, that um, yeah, it's it's a worthy read, this supplement. Um, and there are issues there that we, we weren't able to address on the pod. So listeners do go and take a look at that. Absolutely. And so we might bring the, the today's conversation to a close, but I have to let everybody know that we're highly likely to come back over any number of the issues that were raised in today's podcast in the future. These are part of the recurring themes for Policy Forum uh, podcast, uh, and we look forward to exploring this further with experts such as Sandro and Sharon. 
So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we look forward to hearing your feedback. We always like to hear from the listener uh, group and particularly remind you that you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. We're on Facebook and there's a Facebook group which is called Policy Forum Pod and you type that into the search bar and you can join into a often rich discussion. Listeners, we'll be back next week with another episode. So from me, Anagreta Hunter, that's bye-bye for now. And also bye-bye for now from me, Sharon Bessel. 